afternoon, and thank you for joining us. My name is Robin Maggio, representing the National Resource Center on ADHD, and I'd like to welcome you to our webcast, Evidence-Based Treatment for ADHD in Young Children, with guest expert, Dr. Mary Margaret Gleason. The National Resource Center on ADHD is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. Today's webcast is part of our Ask the Expert series, giving the community access to lead clinicians, researchers, and other ADHD professionals. It is a pleasure to introduce today's guest expert, Dr. Mary Margaret Gleason. Dr. Gleason is a pediatrician and child and adolescent psychiatrist at Tulane University School of Medicine, specializing in infant and early childhood mental health. Currently, she is the clinical director of two early childhood mental health consultation programs and has been training director or associate training director for child psychiatry and triple board for the last 10 years. Her academic interests focus on the early identification of childhood mental health disorders, early childhood mental health disorders in high-risk children, and mental health consultative approaches. She has developed a screening tool to identify young children at risk for mental health concerns that has been endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics and has coordinated an effort to define the evidence base related to preschool medications. She serves in a number of child psychiatry and pediatric leadership positions, including the American Academy of Pediatrics Early Brain and Child Development Leadership Workgroup and is on the editorial board of the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Once again, we are pleased to welcome this afternoon's guest expert, Dr. Gleason. Hi, and thank you everyone for uh, participating in the webinar today. I'm really excited to be able to talk about this topic, and particularly given the um, recent uh, attention to preschool ADHD uh, that has come through the CDC. So this, I think, is a very well-timed uh, webinar. So the, I was a little um, ambitious in defining objectives, uh, and you can see here, and many of you probably looked at them to, in deciding whether or not to join the webinar, but our goals today are to uh, highlight some of the factors that influence the presentation of ADHD or other disorders in young children, to identify um, specific evidence-based uh, approaches um, in terms of therapy, talk about how to monitor therapy, and talk then about medication and how to proceed to cons when considering medication uh, in treating preschool ADHD. To do that, we'll first talk about assessment, therapy, treatment approaches, and then again, medications. So first, ADHD in preschoolers. I'm sure that the, for people who are on this webinar, the DSM-5 criteria for ADHD are already quite familiar. I do want to highlight a couple of pieces that I think are important when thinking about ADHD in very young children. First is the two-setting criterion, that the symptoms have to present in more than one setting um, or relationship. And that's going to be important as we think about the differential diagnosis of ADHD in preschoolers. The other piece that I think is particularly uh, useful to consider in very young children is that these symptoms must be developmentally inappropriate. Um, and that we need to make sure that we are carefully distinguishing what is pathologic and what is uh, typical development, especially in children 
uh, who are developing as quickly as preschoolers are. Um, as most of you know, to meet the criteria for ADHD, children must have six out of nine symptoms from the hyperactive and impulsive uh, cluster, or six out of nine from the inattentive cluster, or may have the combined type in which they meet criteria for both. I'm not going to spend time on the uh, specific symptoms uh, other than to say that in young children we see more of the hyperactive impulsive symptoms than we do of the inattentive symptoms. Uh, and again, we need to think about these symptoms as being developmentally inappropriate. Hyperactive impulsive um, symptoms I think um, are things that we can see both in the home setting as well as in out-of-home childcare settings. Inattentive symptoms, as I mentioned, tend to be less commonly seen in younger children um, and require really specific questions to get a sense of what's developmentally inappropriate inattention. Uh, so for example, we wouldn't expect a three-year-old to be able to uh, sit, for, sit entirely still and focus on um, looking at books independently for an hour, for example. That would be too long. But we might expect them to be able to attend to a book that someone else is reading to them um, and get from the beginning to the end of the book. Similar, um, in terms of the differential diagnosis, this is where I think um, the first major um, attention needs to be focused. Uh, Inattention and hyperactivity can present uh, and have so many meanings in the early years. Again, the brain is developing as quickly as it ever will. Uh, and so young, and young children have a somewhat limited repertoire of ways that they can demonstrate distress and ways that they can demonstrate um, discomfort. So we see uh, symptoms of inattention and hyperactivity that represent ADHD, but may also represent other kinds of processes. The first one, of course, is typical development. We want to think about is this type, is this development within the normal range? Recognizing that the normal range for children is broad, uh, and that uh, even within a family, siblings may have typical development but different patterns of attention or activity. Uh, we need to be wondering about context-specific dysregulation. Children who meet all of the uh, symptom counts for ADHD, but only when they're in loud, busy places or only when they're with a certain person. If the symptoms only occur within the context of one physical setting or one relationship, we need to be very careful um, that we're not diagnosing ADHD and we're wondering what it is about that setting that's particularly difficult for the child. Uh, one of the things that might be difficult moving around the circle here is uh, that there may be trauma reminders in a particular setting or with a particular person. So we need to be aware that trauma can present as dysregulated behavior, impulsivity in particular, but also inattention. Lead is not necessarily a differential diagnosis. Lead toxicity can be comorbid with ADHD, but an important piece to think about when we're thinking about the etiology, particularly of hyperactive impulsive symptoms. There are, similarly, there are a number of genetic syndromes or um, congenital syndromes or toxidromes that may present uh, with symptoms that look like ADHD. Among the most common, uh, the most common form of developmental delay that's inherited is uh, Fragile X, which presents with significant hyperactivity, impulsivity, and inattention. Um, 
and should be considered in children who have um, developmental delays in ADHD. I've mentioned developmental delays in children who have um, a intellectual disability or a developmental delay. Uh, their activity level and, and attention level needs to be compared to their developmental age, not their chronological age. So they may appear to have symptoms of ADHD because they're globally um, delayed across multiple domains. Children with anxiety may be inattentive and preoccupied with their own worries, um, or they may look um, hypervigilant, dysregulated, and, um, and appear to have impulsivity. Some, they may, this pattern is similar to what you may see in children with mood problems who may be preoccupied with feeling sad or their internal experiences. Certainly, we need to be aware of the potential for CNS processes, central nervous system disorders. One of the most um, common ones to think about may be absence seizures, uh, which can be uh, mistaken for inattention. Um, children may have a few seconds of not being responsive, um, even to their name, and have and the explanation may be that they have epileptiform activity or seizure activity in their brain rather than they inattention. And the last uh, part of the differential that I've included on this um, graphic is adult perception and tolerance. That we know that um, just as children have a wide variability of uh, levels of activity, adults have a pretty wide range of of tolerance for child activity level. And it's important that we don't designate a um, set of child behaviors as pathologic merely because the adult finds them overwhelming. They, we need to make sure that they're objectively more active, more impulsive, and less attentive than other children their age. Moving to the next slide, um, in the assessment process, we want to make sure that uh, a careful history is taken. Um, this is similar to what we do with older children. Uh, we'll go through the symptoms of ADHD, but also of trauma symptoms, anxiety, um, mood disorders, uh, developmental process. We want to take a careful medical history because we know that children who are born prematurely are at risk of ADHD. Similarly, I already mentioned lead exposure increases hyperactivity and impulsivity, as well as cognitive delays. Children who've had head trauma or loss of consciousness or other central nervous system processes uh, may have multiple reasons for presenting with impulsivity or hyperactivity. We want to take a careful developmental history, as I mentioned, um, to be sure that we're assessing a child who's on track in other developmental domains. And because of the importance of context, the caregiving context and the um, child caregiving context, we want to pay attention to whether the child's been exposed to traumatic events, um, major traumatic events like motor vehicle accidents, watching someone get hurt physically, being hurt physically themselves, um, but also wondering about um, events that may be experienced by the child uh, as difficult loss of a pet, for example, um, is one that sometimes can uh, be related to the onset of difficult behaviors. Uh, school history, a child's uh, ability to participate in out-of-home care if, they, uh, if the family has chosen to do that, um, and how that's gone is an important part of 
taking the history. And then, of course, we know that biologically, that ADHD is a biologically um, inheritable disease or disease process, um, and so we want to make sure that we pay attention to the potential for genetics influencing the child's presentation, particularly with asking about the family history of ADHD, substance abuse, mood disorder, either unipolar depression or bipolar depression. Because the caregiving context also matters in addition to the genetics, we ask about um, the family, the mental health history of all caregivers, whether they're biologic or adopted or foster. It's really valuable to think about using a measure for an assessment um, to identify children at risk for, for ADHD, but also um, for other uh, mental health issues. The measure can also guide further assessment and can help make the assessment be a little bit more efficient um, by collecting a lot of information in a um, pretty concentrated way. Ideally, getting more than one caregiver to complete the measure, so for example, um, a child care provider or a parent and the grandparent who watches the child um, gives a robust, more three-dimensional picture of what, what different people are seeing with the child's behavior. Some of the measures that uh, may be considered uh, are the early childhood screening assessment, which uh, in full disclosure was developed uh, here at Tulane and at Brown, uh, which identifies children at risk for mental health problems. Um, and has been validated using a comprehensive psychiatric diagnostic interview. Um, the preschool pediatric symptom checklist was developed uh, or modeled after the pediatric symptom checklist, which is a widely used, well-validated tool uh, focused on, again, identifying children who may be at risk of a mental health problem. Those two are non-proprietary and have no cost associated, uh, and the remainder of the measures on uh, this slide do have some cost, although not necessarily, um, although not um, most of them are affordable to larger healthcare systems. Uh, we recommend using a broad-based measure because of the importance of assessing or identifying other processes like anxiety and mood. Um, so we, have, we expand the scope of the assessment by using these measures rather than an ADHD-only um, measure. In our program, where we consult to pediatric primary care providers, we're really encouraging our providers to think about using structured assessments of the caregiving environment as well. I've listed a couple here. The SEEK is what we use in our program the most. Um, it identifies uh, children at risk for maltreatment, but um, what we've found is it's really helpful in identifying families who may be struggling in a number of different ways, uh, and that, of course, those struggles may be influencing the child's clinical presentation. It goes through things like knowing the number for poison control, uh, have, having um, stable access to food, um, parental depression, violence in the home. Um, so it has a, a range of con uh, contextual factors that it identifies. The We Care is a measure that identifies similar processes, particularly um, highlighting food, uh, food insecurity, 
housing stability, uh, and some of the other factors that I identified in the SEEK. Using a measure of caregiver depression can be helpful in identifying um, in the assessment of young children presenting with chief complaints that look like ADHD. The PHQ-2, the Patient Health Questionnaire 2, is a very quick two-item measure um, to identify caregiver depression, um, which is important to identify because it may be influencing the um, parental report of the child's behavior or the parent's experience of the child's behavior, but is also known to exacerbate risk for uh, ADHD. And I've included the Young Child PTSD checklist here as well. This, um, the first part of this measure includes a number of potentially traumatic events, um, which is a, provides a provider a systematic way of assessing uh, life events in a child. As part of the physical examination, uh, as part of the assessment, we want to make sure that the child has had a physical examination, whether um, by the person doing the ADHD evaluation or by someone else, making sure that vital signs are within normal limits, assessing for the potential for features that may suggest uh, the presence of a genetic disorder or prenatal exposure to um, toxins such as alcohol. We want to make sure that the child can hear and can see reasonably well. Um, we look for tonsillar hypertrophy or large tonsils because uh, obstructive sleep apnea can um, cause such disrupted sleep that children present with symptoms of ADHD during the day. Uh, it's very rare. I haven't ever seen it, but um, it's there's a potential for hyperthyroidism to present with hyperactivity and uh, weight loss and thyromegaly. Um, or a large thyroid. Certainly an important part of a physical examination is to make sure that the child doesn't have any indications of an unsafe caregiving environment um, or non-accidental um, injury. And lastly, we look for ticks because if we may be moving down a path towards um, uh, thinking about medication, it's valuable to know if a child has ticks before. So the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, suggested that as the part of the, the assessment should um, include a positive parent and teacher report of ADHD symptoms um, and should either rule out or confirm the comorbid conditions. I want to take a quick uh, uh, step away from the just presenting data to describe a case that highlights the importance of asking about and thinking about some other um, causes of, a, of ADHD-like symptoms. And this is a um, case of a three-year, eight-month-old boy who was presented to the pediatric office with the chief complaint of he's out of control. Uh, his Mother reported that he's unable to sit. He always runs away from her in the supermarket. He hits other people, especially when he feels angry. He's been expelled or asked to leave multiple child care centers, actually three. Um, and his mother reported, though, that he can do okay if the classroom is quiet. When she was uh, asked a little bit more about symptoms, um, she endorsed nightmares and hypervigilance. Going through the past medical record, um, the primary care provider noted that he had had no prenatal care um, during pregnancy and had been born at 36 weeks gestational age. He was 
living at the time with his mother and four siblings. Um, and the primary care provider did a great job of asking a little bit more about the history, specifically asking, have you all always lived together, which is a very valuable question. Um, and in that, uh, with that question, she learned that the child had been separated from the mother for about nine months uh, when child protection got involved after the mother had left the child alone with the seven-year-old sister. She stated that his behavior started after he returned from that separation. She did endorse a family history of nerves, uh, which is something that um, is obviously nonspecific, but uh, when asked more, she endorsed anxiety symptoms um, and reactive mood and reported that the biological father had been incarcerated for domestic violence and was no longer in the child's uh, family. I think this little vignette highlights the real value of asking those extra questions about trauma-related symptoms, particularly the mood and the hypervigilance, the keeping track of everything going on around him, um, the value of the medical home, and being able to look back at the birth history notes, um, and then the uh, expertise of this provider who asked specifically about the caregiving history um, and whether or not the family had always lived together. When we think about trauma-related symptoms, um, the some markers that might indicate that um, a pattern is more related to ADHD is more related to trauma than to ADHD might be exacerbation of the symptoms uh, with triggers or reminders, um, a high variability of symptoms depending on the context, uh, higher levels of emotional reactivity, which we can see in children with ADHD as well, um, and when we can hear the history of adversity, um, that's certainly a um, important red flag. But in young children, we may or may not hear that they've been exposed to these adverse childhood events. Trauma and ADHD do go together, so these these are not mutually exclusive, but important to make sure that we know the whole picture of what we're treating so that we can be effective in the treatment. For people who are thinking about whether labs need to be done for a child who is presenting with ADHD, and now we're moving back to a child who we feel confident, confident so far in our assessment that we've done seems to be presenting with symptoms of ADHD, there isn't a specific need for lab tests unless there's a um, history or a physical exam that's suggestive of an underlying disorder. Um, pica or eating uh, non-food items or at least putting and even just putting them in the mouth would be a reason to look for uh, lead levels and anemia. Certainly lead exposure, houses built before 1978 um, is one of the markers and there are some geographic areas as uh, we're increasingly aware that uh, have higher rates of exposure where it might be where it's always important to make sure the child has had a normal lead level. Children who have dysmorphic features may benefit from a referral to genetics um, or um, a workup. And anything that suggests seizures, obstructive sleep apnea, or any other chronic medical condition. Um, otherwise, though, we wouldn't do labs um, routinely for young children. So interventions. As I mentioned, the CDC just came out with some really um, rich 
information about preschoolers and ADHD. And this map shows what children are getting now. The colors for each of the state represents um, the children, the number of children or the rates of children with ADHD who are receiving medication treatment, with darker being higher and the darkest being more than 80% of children, preschoolers with ADHD are receiving psychopharmacological treatment. The yellow circles represent the rates of behavioral therapy within the past year, and the largest circles that you can see in the Northeast um, and out on the West Coast, um, and also right in Wyoming, um, represent the highest rates, or more than half of the children with um, ADHD are receiving uh, behavioral therapy. You can see there's extraordinary variability um, across the states. Um, certainly the coasts appear to have lighter colors, meaning less medication um, use, and higher rates of behavioral therapy than many of the states uh, in the central part of the U.S. By the numbers uh, from the CDC data, approximately 2 million children um, were diagnosed with ADHD, uh, with 75% receiving medication therapy and just under half receiving therapy, with uh, not significant differences between um, the children on Medicaid and um, children with private insurance. There are some differences, um, but strikingly um, not dramatic differences. The kinds of therapy that were that are being received is not available from this data from these data. Um, so the type of model of therapy or the quality of the therapy provided isn't included. Forty five percent received some kind of therapy though. This slide uh, from the same set of resources uh, shows the rates of medication use therapies um, and rates of diagnosis with ADHD for children from 2008 to 2011. Um, you can see that between 1.4 and 1.5-ish uh, percent of children 2 to 5 um, received a diagnosis of ADHD, and then you can see the rates of medication and therapy, and again, that the um, more children are receiving medication than receiving therapy, and some are receiving both. What does the data say that they should be getting? Um, first line, treatment from um, recommended by every professional organization uh, that talks about this uh, topic is parent management training as the first line treatment for young children with ADHD. Um, the CDC has done a great job with these infographics, and you can see in behavioral therapy, the goal is to support parents in developing strength in positive communication, positive reinforcement, and increased structure and discipline. And I'd highlight that when I work with families, it's important to emphasize that for children with ADHD, parents may need more than the usual of each of these. More. Um, expanded skills in the communication, the reinforcement, and the structure and discipline, that the ADHD doesn't, um, that the diagnosis of ADHD doesn't suggest a um, deficit or a problem in how the parent has been using these skills, but that the child may need more. There are certainly cases in which um, there's more room for growth um, in these areas, but important that families hear that 
the reason for the parent management training is not is is the child's symptoms, um, and that that's where the data come from. This is a not as fancy graphic uh, that we've developed as part of our program, highlighting the principles of parent management training. The green is the foundation. Children need to have a foundation in which they receive positive reinforcement for positive behaviors um, to really emphasize how valuable those positive behaviors are. Um, we encourage parents to withdraw attention for the provocative or middle level annoying kinds of behaviors. Um, and then to use safe, consistent, boring consequences for of truly unacceptable or unsafe behaviors. Um, the importance or the value of putting this into a pyramid is to emphasize that the bulk of intervention of parent management training is this positive reinforcement for positive behaviors, and that provides the foundation for the rest of the interventions. Um, and that parents are being the most important people in a child's life, parental attention is that powerful. That using a lot of it for the positive behaviors and withdrawing it for that middle range behavior is actually incredibly motivating for most children. There are a number of models of parent management training. Uh, I'm not going to go through the details of each of them, um, but there are some listed here, Incredible Years, PCIT, Triple P, the New Forest Program, which is uh, developed in the UK, and helping the non-compliant child. Each of them has their own characteristics um, or unique uh, traits, but they are all built on that pyramid. Um, and on the uh, components that are described in the CDC infographic I showed you. PCIT's unique um, characteristic, it actually has a number, but one is that parents are actually coached through a one-way mirror with a bug in the ear, a small microphone connected to a walkie-talkie um, that allows them to become the therapist. And the uh, professional therapist coaches the parent in skills that are used in traditional play therapy. Um, again, using that pyramid model of positive reinforcement for positive behaviors. The Incredible Years series uh, is a um, has parent, teacher, and classroom intervention models. The parent focus groups, parent focused interventions include groups using video vignettes and robust group discussions. Uh, Triple P has multiple levels, including a, a community focused level, a primary care focused level, group, and individual. Um, as well as now an online version, self-directed online version. Um, it's, the model is, really highlights uh, self-directed learning for the parents and um, emphasizes parents' competence as they come into this uh, challenging situation. The New Forest program was specifically developed for ADHD. The others were developed um, initially for disruptive behaviors more generically, um, but certainly including signs of ADHD. Um, and emphasizes positive reinforcement for on-task behaviors rather than um, for all positive behaviors. Oops. Uh, and the last one, Helping the Non-Compliant Child, is a newer program um, which uses the same principles focuses on positive reinforcement and practicing commands, and also includes homework, practicing at home to generalize those skills uh, beyond the therapy sessions. I've put the outcomes together uh, because despite these uh, unique characteristics, I think what's striking is uh, that 
these interventions um, have similar outcomes, similar principles. Um, and so the outcomes that I want to highlight are that children have decreased disruptive behavior patterns uh, when exposed to parent management training, decreased or fewer ADHD symptoms, um, we see less coercive parenting, um, importantly, lower recidivism for maltreating parents, um, and decreased parental stress or depression if they didn't start out in the clinical range, and that's an important caveat. Uh, these interventions all take significant time and energy investment from the parent, and people who are clinically depressed may struggle with um, mobilizing those kinds of emotional and energy resources. But for people who are stressed but not clinically depressed, uh, we see decreases in this experience. As an aside, parent management training uh, has been shown to be effective in other situations as well, including separation anxiety. I mentioned the maltreating um, families. Uh, and new data demonstrates that uh, parent management training through PCIT can be uh, associated with decreased depressive symptoms in preschoolers as well. So these principles really are uh, incredibly robust in terms of their effects on child, early childhood psychopathology. Data from PCIT demonstrate that these are not just robust findings in the short term, but that they're durable and last over time. Um, the you can see here that even six years later, uh, there's a decrease compared to baseline in the parent-reported symptoms of the child's disruptive behaviors, and the parents feel like they're in charge of what's going on more than they did when they first came to treatment. There are very few interventions uh, in uh, childhood mental health that have robust findings six years later, so these, this is really exciting that we have interventions that have that kind of durability. But these are not panaceas. Um, they are not available in all areas. And if you think back to the map, um, it's likely that the overlay of parent management training um, clinicians is probably lowest in those states that have the darkest blue. Um, the cost and the um, coverage by insurance is variable. They take a tremendous time investment. So therapy is usually weekly uh, and often involves homework. Uh, they also require that people buy into this idea that they can change their child's um, behavior, including behaviors related to a neurodevelopmental disorder like ADHD, um, by changing how they respond to behaviors. That's sometimes a, um, it, takes a, it takes a lot to, um, to buy into that, to that theory um, or that hypothesis. There are parents with intellectual disabilities who may struggle with learning the skills related to the different parent management training approaches, and that may be a challenge for them. Uh, as I mentioned before, clinically significant parental mental health problems uh, are, can interfere with the implementation of some of these strategies as well. So on average, about a third of people um, may not finish this kind of treatment, and that varies across the different modalities. Um, but especially in high-risk populations, that's about what happens. So what do we need to do? When we're doing PMT or parent management training, any of the models, 
we need to keep track of are people coming? How invested do they seem? How much do they buy into the theories um, and the principles of this kind of treatment? Most of these models use ongoing symptom reports. Ideally, we get reports from multiple observers, um, not just the parent who's involved in the treatment or parents who are involved in the treatment. And we really want to keep track of impairment. So it may be that symptom um, frequency doesn't change much, but the degree to which they get in the way of a child's life is starting to change. And that's really important to keep track of. Similarly, if a child's level of impairment isn't getting better, we need to be thinking about what do we need to do differently. Um, is it about engagement? Is it about adherence? Or is it about um, a mismatch? So we need to think, is the mismatch related to the diagnosis? Have we missed something? Is there something new that's happening? We want to reconsider our diagnosis and our formulation. We do want to think about, is this family able to focus on this intensive therapy at this point? Um, Maslow's hierarchy of identifying basic needs um, and prioritizing basic needs over other needs is important to think about when parent management training isn't working. Again, we want to wonder if the parents um, are, are, have something that gets in the way of them understanding um, the model. And as clinicians, we need to first think, have we failed in our explanation of the model of treatment? Uh, but also, is, does the parent have an intellectual disability that might limit their um, understanding? We might consider using motivational enhancement strategies to think about uh, engagement further. And think about alternative treatment targets of the treatment, particularly parental depression. But maybe the child needs treatment for the post-traumatic stress disorder first and then come back to the ADHD if it's still a problem. This pyramid is the same, um, same pyramid that I had shown before. So I'd like you to imagine that the bottom uh, foundation is still green. That's what we want to do the most of. Uh, and this slide is here to talk about when formal parent management training isn't available. So in many areas of the country, um, or even different parts of cities, different parts of states, there are not trained providers in evidence-based parent management training. Uh, and many of us work in those kinds of settings. So it's important to think about, what do you do then? As part of our consultation model here in Louisiana, we promote the implementation of this kind of pyramid, helping parents understand the, um, the parenting pyramid um, as a way of starting to increase the attention to positive behaviors, taking away attention or, quote, ignoring provocative behaviors, and supporting parents in implementing safe, consistent consequences for those unsafe or unacceptable behaviors. So this is something that can happen in childcare settings, it can happen in early intervention settings, and certainly can happen in the medical home um, of sitting down with parents and talking them through uh, this kind of strategy. Other things beyond the pyramid, we, um, in the medical home, thinking about close follow-up children, for children with special health care needs, which includes preschool ADHD. So checking in regularly. Uh, coaching the parents also in maybe using a token economy. So a sticker chart, for example, and increasingly there are sticker charts online that parents um, and children uh, really enjoy because they have animations that get exciting as a child earns more points. Um, but again, concrete ways of 
positive reinforcement as well as relational ways of demonstrating positive reinforcement for positive behavior. Most of the evidence-based treatments include some kind of time in, special time in which a parent focuses on the positive behaviors and catching the child at being good. So that's something that can be informally implemented. And then there are a number of books or handouts that might be useful for um, parents who don't have access to therapy. On our website, we have some uh, handouts that we think are pretty useful. Um, the AAP, the American Academy of, Ch of Pediatrics, excuse me, um, at healthychildren.org, uh, which is one word, has uh, really valuable resources to promote well-being in children across multiple domains. Triple P Online has some uh, is now available for parents to uh, download uh, for a fee and self-direct in implementing a parent management training model. For people who work in childcare settings, the Center for Social Emotional Foundations in Early Learning, CEFL, uh, has wonderful handouts that can be incredibly useful um, to give to parents and also for providers. And a couple of books that I think have um, really elucidated some of the principles that we've talked about here. Um, Explosive Child and Additive Think Child may also be useful. When formal PMT is not available, also emphasizing healthy balances, healthy choices that aren't likely going to treat ADHD but could ameliorate or reduce some of the symptoms um, or reduce the ongoing risk. So limiting screen time, which we know is associated with um, inattention. Um, increasing the potential for running around and having outdoor exercise time. Thinking about healthy nutrition. Um, and. Uh, wondering about omega-3 fatty acids, which have modest, um, are associated with modest reductions in ADHD symptoms in older children. Um, as an aside, many preschool children don't like the fish taste of omega-3 fatty acids. Um, making sure that sleep is uh, going well, and then also advocating for appropriate accommodations in the school setting may also be helpful, even when uh, formal PMT is not available. When those aren't effective, um, or if a child's in, at risk, thinking about medication may be warranted. Um, certainly, if a child's completed parent management training, has ongoing impairment or severe symptoms, that would be a time to think about medication. If PMT is available, but um, there's, there are circumstances which interfere with uh, the family's ability to participate, whether it be untreated psychopathology or logistics or transportation, um, medications may be something to think about. Uh, and you can see some of the other times when people can't access PMT, they live in a place without it, or even um, sometimes a clinician may consider medications when a child's demonstrating extreme dangerousness or risk, uh, although this should be a um, pretty rare occurrence. People have a lot of reactions to thinking about medications in young children. Um, this cartoon demonstrates a red line going towards adverse outcomes and um, green line going towards healthy CNS development or central nervous system development. Um, there's a question about whether pharmacological treatment might help a child move from that adverse trajectory to the healthy trajectory, um, that we might give them a stronger foundation. There are certainly reasons also to be concerned that 
there may be long-term uh, central nervous system ramifications of early exposure to pharmacological agents when the brain is developing so quickly in the preschool years. Oops. Um, the bottom line is we don't have those data. We do know that uh, medications uh, do change neurotransmitter receptor functions in um, uh, animal models. Um, and we've also seen some benefits clinically for some children. So uh, there isn't a hard and fast answer on where preschool psychopharmacological treatment influences um, development on this cartoon. The data, though, come from randomized controlled trials. Um, the, this, there's one study, the preschool ADHD treatment study, um, that was a multi-site large study for children with uh, moderate to severe ADHD. Um, I don't want to go through this slide in detail. I put it up here to demonstrate that they went through multiple, multiple phases of the treatment, including parent management training before getting to the pharmacological trial. Um, they did a trial of um, an open label trial, meaning non-blinded, people knew what they were taking, and then they determined a child's own personal optimal dose, and then they controlled, compared that optimal dose with placebo. Um, The primary outcome of that study was that methylphenidate, or Ritalin, um, was better than placebo at reducing the symptoms of ADHD. Uh, so that was a positive outcome. Oops. Um, what was striking was the effect size, or the impact, was less than what's seen in uh, older children. So in this table, you can see the preschool ADHD treatment study effect sizes are modest. They're lower than the gold standard multimodal treatment of ADHD study um, that studied children who were uh, school-age children. So although methylphenidate was superior to placebo, it had less of an effect uh, compared to younger children, uh, excuse me, compared to older children. Um, and only 21% of children achieved full remission um, at their optimal dose. So it's effective, but not um, a panacea. Children in the preschool ADHD treatment study had higher rates of side effects than children, um, older children on stimulants. Um, it's the same kinds of side effects, uh, appetite, sleep, abdominal pain, um, but somewhat higher rates of emotionality and irritability than what we see in older children. Strikingly, children who, um, the preschool children had higher peak serum concentrations um, than school-aged children, meaning that for the same dose by weight, the the blood level got higher for the preschool children than the younger than the older children. Um, that suggests that the um, absorption, the rate of absorption, may be quicker, or the rate of um, metabolism or breakdown may be slower. For children who had multiple disorders or diagnoses, uh, three or more for example, ADHD, ODD, and anxiety, there was no difference between placebo and methylphenidate. So important to think about those children with more complex uh, symptom presentations that this may not be as effective for them. And strikingly, there wasn't a difference um, 
between treatment, methylphenidate treatment and placebo on parenting stress, social competence, or social skills uh, in this study. Not too long ago, the group uh, published their long-term findings at three, four, and six years. Most children continued to have ADHD, um, which is what we would expect for a neurodevelopmental disorder. Um, the outcomes that were seen later, three, four, and six years old, were not related to methylphenidate treatment responsiveness. So whether they got better during the initial study didn't predict how they were doing six years later. Um, interestingly, the worst outcomes um, were for the children whose par parents participated in the parent management training and completed it, but didn't finish the psychopharm treatment. Um, and the interesting finding that we won't go into too much today is that concurrent treatment wasn't associated with ADHD symptoms. There are some studies that look at other um, medications, but quite limited. So atomoxetine has been studied in a large um, study of over 100 children. And they had the same take-home message, that atomoxetine was more effective than placebo, but um, high rates of mood in, um, reactivity were seen. Um, and a number of them still had substantial impairment when being treated with atomoxetine. Um, although methamphetamine salts are the, uh, is the medication that is, um, does not have an FDA contraindication on it, um, methylphenidate does, interestingly enough, um, we have very little data uh, in preschoolers on methamphetamine salts. It would make sense, though, that it probably functions similarly to uh, methylphenidate um, as it does with older children. Alpha agonists haven't been studied for ADHD um, in rigorous randomized control trials. Bupropion has also not been studied, um, and, but there are case reports of seizures related to bupropion in preschoolers. Um, and tricyclic antidepressants, which are rarely used, um, have very narrow therapeutic windows um, and the potential for life-threatening side effects. So the recommendations are to start with one stimulant, um, and then ideally methylphenidate because it's got more data, but uh, family history, uh, practice preference, and the formulations may influence the, the selection of which stimulant. And to increase the dose over time until uh, it's effective or adverse effects occur. We do the same kind of, oh, excuse me, I didn't correct the slide. It should be clinical monitoring with stimulant. But the same symptom monitoring is the same as parent management training. And we add monitoring of growth, vital signs, emotionality ticks, and of course engagement in ongoing psychotherapy. There are issues related to psychopharmacological treatment, even though it's more available than uh, psychotherapy. The formulation or the what I call the swallowability, which is a very non-technical term, um, is an important thing in very young children. Many of the extended release capsules, um, Focalin, Metadate, uh, can be opened and sprinkled on um, yogurt or, or pudding, but medications like extended release uh, methylphenidate concerta can't be opened, so it's a challenge for young children. Um, 
the limited duration of the immediate release uh, medications, which are um, easiest to get through most formularies, uh, is a difficulty for children in out-of-home childcare. Other insurance um, limitations may also exist. Uh, psychopharmacological treatment doesn't influence the risk status, the risk factors that might have put the child at risk for um, developing. ADHD, some of those are static, such as genetic risks, but some of them are modifiable in terms of caregiving environment, um, and treatment only with medication isn't going to change those. Um, the other challenge that sometimes comes up is magical expectations, um, the hope that we all have that we'll find something that um, improves a child's life so they're happy, functioning, have no side effects, um, and that it happens without a lot of uh, time investment. We all hope for that, um, and sometimes parents hold on to that hope, or teachers hold on to that hope, um, and attribute powers to medication that the medication cannot have. Um, I'm realizing that I want to make sure that we have time, so I'm going to not go through these principles, other than to say that medications should be used with therapy. Um, and just like with therapy, we need to reassess if the medication isn't working. Um, so in summary, ADHD is a common chronic um, neurodevelopmental process in childhood. Um, the symptoms may appear nonspecific or overlap with other disorders, and the assessment needs to be fairly comprehensive to ensure that children have access to the right treatment. The assessment, therefore, requires input from teachers and other caregivers. Um, the evidence base for therapy is robust, hundreds of randomized control trials, um, and the safety profile is pretty good, except for the time investment. Um, there's a very, very limited evidence base for the psychopharmacological treatment of ADHD in preschoolers and invites us to be really cautious um, and judicious in using these medications. And for any kind of treatment, uh, we need close follow-up and reassessment um, when uh, a treatment is not uh, as effective as we would hope. So I'm going to stop there, and I think we have some room for some questions. Great. Thank you, Dr. Gleason. Um, that was some really comprehensive information about treatment for ADHD in preschool-age children. Um, so as a reminder, we do have a, a few minutes, so we will take uh, a handful of questions. So if you have any questions, you can submit them in the question box, and um, we'll hope to get to a couple of them. We do have one question that came in, and it's relating a little bit to the differential diagnosis for ADHD in preschool children. So this participant's concern is that sometimes in older children with ADHD, um, there's long-term effects in their self-esteem and how others might treat him or her. Um, does this play a role in the differential diagnosis uh, within young children when deciding if, if they have ADHD or not? Um, I think there are a couple of pieces to that part of the conversation. Um, the first is that um, I think that we as a society, certainly as treatment providers um, and people working with young children need to be really cognizant of how we talk about um, all uh, diagnoses um, and use language that 
doesn't attribute blame, doesn't attribute judgment. Um, and so I think, but that's, that is a utopian <laughs> response um, that I hope that we can move towards more respectful language related to um, any diagnosis. Um, in terms of whether we use the diagnosis, or whether we, have, um, whether we make a diagnosis of ADHD in a child who meets the criteria for ADHD and is, uh, which includes all of the symptoms and clinical impairment. Um, I tend to uh, to use the diagnosis um, and explain to the parents what the process is that we're talking about. In young children, the stability of any um, developmental diagnosis is uh, has some limitations. And although most children who ha who meet criteria for a diagnosis in preschool will continue to meet criteria for a diagnosis in the school age period, the diagnosis or the presentation may change. So we need to be really careful that we're, we're not um, overemphasizing the stability of a particular set of symptoms. Um, and then the, the, so, but I do use the, I use the words um, that best describe a clinical syndrome that I'm treating um, and I talk to the parent about that. They can decide whether the people in their child's life are going to be able to use that information <laughs> um, to help the child. And so I think that's a decision that parents can make about how do they use the information of the diagnosis. But I personally use the, use the language um, that's clinically appropriate. The third reaction I have to this question, and I think it's a great question because it's so complex, uh, is the treatment for ADHD as, oh, excuse me, um, the treatment for ADHD as uh, in preschool is all about positive reinforcement. And so in fact, by using the correct terminology and um, using appropriate treatment, I would expect young children with preschool onset ADHD to actually um, benefit in terms of self-esteem um, and to feel good about themselves. They don't need to be told what ADHD is, um, but they will, with the appropriate treatment, receive high, high doses of positive reinforcement that validates um, their, themselves, uh, their behaviors and themselves. Great, thank you. I think we, we have one other question that's come in. So you mentioned briefly about children who have a history of tics, and so somebody was asking um, what's the significance and what's the importance of monitoring uh, tics and ADHD treatment? Oh, sure, um, and sorry for not being explicit about that. Um, there's some data to say that there are people who, with, who have a predisposition for a tick disorder um, that may be unmasked when they take a stimulant medication uh, like methylphenidate or like methamphetamine salts. Um, if they have ticks already and even if, um, or if they have a risk factor through um, family history of ticks, we still use those medications when it's clinically appropriate, um, but we would want to counsel the family to keep track of if they worsen substantially um, with the medication. Um, and then we would decide with the family the risks and benefits of continuing, depending on the intensity of the tics and the intensity of or dangerousness of the symptoms of ADHD. 
Great, thank you for elaborating on that. Um, well, we are at the end of our time for our webinar today, so I just wanted to thank you, Dr. Gleason, for your insights and suggestions, and thank all of our participants for joining us today as well. This concludes our webcast.